Well, this morning I'm going to kind of do a variety of things. And if you haven't turned to the Olivet Discourse this morning, you might turn to two places, the one that is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, and then we're going to spend a little time in Luke's Gospel. That's Luke chapter 21. But before we get to Luke chapter 21, I wanted to finish up some things that I kind of rushed at the end last time, and also some things that we didn't get to at all relating to verse 14. And it relates to things that are going on in our culture, so we want to understand the times. Some of you may not be aware of some of these things, so I want to call your attention to them after we look at verse 14. So we've spent a lot of time in the setting of the Olivet Discourse. We're still in the portion called the Tribulation Period, which is future from our time. And yet, the Olivet Discourse is primarily Jesus' eschatological or prophetic portion of his ministry where he's basically looking ahead. But yet in Luke, if you remember in the introduction, I mentioned that the disciples ask a specific question. They ask a question, when will these things take place? Jesus is a little vague on that because much of what he's talking about is prophetic. Now certainly it had application to the first century generation, but uh, Jesus is primarily looking ahead, except in one little portion of Luke's passage, which seems to be focused on the first century. So that's what we'll do when we get to that passage. But everything else that we've been looking at is in this tribulation period. So we have been looking at the beginning of birth pangs, 4 through 14, and last week we got to verse 14. And that deals with the declaration of the gospel during this tribulation period. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now, we talked about a lot of that, so I'm not going to rehash all of that. I just want to get to the end of it and expand that a little bit. And the part that I didn't get to, I didn't look at that last little phrase, then the end will come. I gave you different views, and generally the church takes that passage, and primarily mission agencies, and and those that are even well-known, like uh, what was formerly Campus Crusade, they take that verse and use it as a motivation that we need to present the gospel to a lost world. Now, that's not a bad thing. We should be doing that, but not based on verse 14. Not based on this verse. Because this verse pertains to a future time frame. So last time, we said that there is yet future, the greatest revival that the world will ever see, and has ever seen, but that is in this seven-year period called tribulation. And I reviewed what the book of Revelation tells us. speaks of two prophets, or two witnesses that are prophets, more than likely Moses and Elijah, that I believe, because of the time frame that's given in chapter 11, that they will preach at the very beginning of this seven-year period. And it logically makes sense. We have the Old Testament focus again, focus on Jewish people, 
focus on the nation of Israel. So you would expect that you would have people that would announce certain things. Like John the Baptist kicked off the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century, I think so also these two prophets will kick off a new ministry during this seven-year period. They'll have an immediate response of 144,000 Jewish people, 12,000 from each tribe. That's chapters, chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, verse 7 verses there. In fact, you could include verse 8 as well. 144,000, it's very specific. I've done an extensive study of the numbers in the book of Revelation. I do not find a single number in the book of Revelation that cannot be taken literally. So this one is another one that you should take literally. 144,000. Not 143,999. Alright? But the complete 144,000. Their primary mission, I think, after believing in Jesus as Messiah, their mission is to go out throughout the whole world and basically fulfill verse 14 of the Olivet Discourse, 24-14 in Matthew's Gospel. And they will, in fact, bring about a worldwide revival. Besides that, the book of Revelation also mentions in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, we looked at that passage last time, God will send out an angel such that everyone will eventually hear. If men fail, they will not be overlooked because the angel will make sure that everyone in that generation hears the gospel. No one will be able to say that they did not hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. And as a result of those three, we'll have mass conversions. Now, I also said that these mass conversions, this revival, is the only positive thing that will be taking place during that seven-year period. Now, that's glorious, but it's also going to be a very difficult time. These are new believers. Remember, the church is already gone. The church is raptured. So now you have a new group of believers. They're not the church. They're not identified as the church in the book of Revelation or any of these prophetic passages. They're called saints, they're called the elect, they're called believers, but they're not called the church. The church has a specific time frame, at least if you take scriptures literally. That time frame is from Pentecost to the rapture. That's the church age, something of a parenthetical time in God's eschatological program. So we have these mass conversions. We saw in chapter 7, verse 9, that's the same context as the witness of the 144,000 witnesses. The implication is this is the result of the ministry of the 144,000. And in verse 9, where do these people come from? Every tribe, every nation. How many of them? A few. A number you cannot even count. An innumerable number. Now, where are they? Under the altar. Under the altar, which which tells us in the book of Revelation, when you have those scenes, like in chapter 6, they are in a heavenly position. In other words, they are dead. Most of the believers during this period of time will be martyred. It will be illegal worldwide to be a believer. It will be like being under ISIS. 
You either convert to the world religion of that day, or you die. Those are your options. That's the conditions of the Great Tribulation. Perhaps we're seeing uh, a little bit of a preview of that in that ISIS-type situation. So, Gentiles, a mass number, and uh, Matthew's Gospel, we're going to come back to that in chapter 25, where we're going to look at that again. We're going to look at Gentiles. So, we have the two witnesses, we have 144,000, we have an angel. God is going to make sure everyone hears the Gospel, and the result of that are mass conversions, worldwide, all over the world. And it will fulfill this passage in verse 14. What will this proclamation of the gospel accomplish? It will accomplish several things. This greatest revival gives everyone opportunity to hear the gospel. No one, in spite of the deception, in spite of the false messiahs, in spite of the false Christs, people will have a clear presentation that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in what he did on the cross for your sins, then if you believe that and accept that for yourself personally, you will in fact receive his salvation. That simple message, that's the gospel message. What does that revival accomplish? Several things. An opportunity for all, it results in the greatest revival the world has ever seen, And this is very important. Here's where we ended last week, and I want to expand this. All of the Old Testament, even before Israel is a nation, there's anticipation of the end of all things, the end of history. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Now keep your finger, you have five fingers, so you can keep your place in five spots, right? (laughs) Keep your fingers in Matthew 24, Luke 21. Turn to Deuteronomy 30, and if you can't do that, somebody read that portion. Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 and 6. Remember, the setting of the book of Deuteronomy, Connie's got that one. Somebody else look up Jeremiah 31. Okay, Jenny's got that one. Somebody look up Ezekiel. All right, you got that one. Who's got Romans 11? Great. Brew. Deuteronomy 30. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy, remember, it's written while the children of Israel are in the wilderness. It's at the end of the 40-year wilderness. What Moses is doing is preparing that second generation to enter the land. So Deuteronomy 30 is written before the nation of Israel is even officially a nation. They are just an accumulation of the 12 tribes... And it's not until they have the conquest of the land that they actually, officially you might say, are the nation of Israel, which is after Deuteronomy, that the nation is a nation on the world scene. The book of Deuteronomy is part of their constitution, so they have a common people, they have a common constitution, they don't have a common land yet. That awaits the, the conquest of the land. So this is even before they're a nation, God is looking forward, and if you look at uh, the preceding passages, like 28 and 29, it talks about them in the future apostatizing, abandoning the Lord, going into idolatry, and then as a result of that going into captivity, 
And the passages also talk about God regathering them. And then we have Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 and 6, which speaks of a basic uh, conversion, basically. You got that one, Connie? Notice it says, then, after all of these sequences of events, after apostasy, after idolatry, after captivity, after regathering them, then, read that again. There it is. That's conversion. Did you catch that little phrase? That's inward conversion, circumcision of the heart. Keep reading. Okay. All the way back, even before they're a nation, God lays out their future. That portion is not ultimately fulfilled until this seven-year period of time that we've looked at the passage that described that. Another passage, remember, this is towards the end of Israel's history, Jeremiah 31. This is while they are in apostasy. This is while they are on their way into captivity. But that's not going to be the end of the nation of Israel. You got that one? Is that one, Jenny? This is the, in fact, why don't you start with verse 31. That's the new covenant. This is the new covenant. This is the contract God enters. Read verse 31 and then skip to 33. Stop there. Who's the covenant with? Israel and Judah. They are two entities, you might say, because they're divided at this point. Now, in this period of time, God's going to bring them together. They're going to be one nation. But in Jeremiah's time, there's Judah and there's the ten tribes of the north. The new covenant is not with the church. We are not parties to it. We benefit from it only because we're related to Israel's Messiah. Keep reading, because it's going to tell us what the new covenant entails. Skip to verse 33. On their heart, that's regeneration. Keep reading. They're going to know him personally. They're going to have a personal relationship. See that? Keep reading. Forgiveness of sin. See that? New covenant deals with the nation of Israel. That will be fulfilled during that seven-year period. It has never been fulfilled since Jeremiah prophesied it. Individual Jews that have trusted in Jesus Christ have become part of the church. In fact, that's the mystery of the church, the joining of Jew and Gentile. But the nation as a whole will, in fact, believe during that period of time. What about Ezekiel? This is also the new covenant. Get that one? For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and bring you to your own land. There's a regathering. Keep reading. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you. You should be clean. There's there's forgiveness of sins. From all your filthiness, from all your idols, though I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. There's regeneration, new life. Keep reading. Spirit will I put within you. Indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's all part of the new covenant. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments. Okay? 
Ezekiel. Now they're already in captivity when part of the book of Ezekiel is written. But that's not the end of Israel. In other words, the nation was destroyed, 586 basically, and Ezekiel is writing in that time frame to assure them this is not the end. God was going to revive them, bring them back to the land, regenerate them, and this is in that seven-year period of time. And then in the New Testament, who's got Romans, we read this one last time. For do not desire, brethren, that you should be good of this history, lest you should be wise in the land of you, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Okay, there's a blindness amongst the nation, not necessarily individual Jews, but overall the nation is still in blindness. Even the nation that exists in the land of Israel today. They do not see, they do not have the awareness. They may have heard, but they do not, it doesn't click in terms of Jesus as the Messiah. That blindness is going to be lifted, and this is the time frame. Really. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is all Israel. Israel. The children who come out of Zion will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is that covenant? The new covenant. We just read it in Jeremiah. Paul is alluding to it in Romans 11. We read other aspects of it in uh, Ezekiel. In fact, Ezekiel has more on the new covenant than any other Old Testament book. In fact, any book. And remember, we looked at this in the book of Hebrews because we benefit from it without being parties to it. The book of Hebrews sees a fulfillment in the church not in the sense that the covenant is fulfilled, but in the sense that we benefit from the provisions of the covenant only because we know the Messiah, only because we know Israel's Messiah. Okay? So there are many passages, and these are just a few of them. There's others. Remember the Joel 2 passage that speaks of the presence of the Holy Spirit? Peter takes that and sees it partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. But if you look at the details, the details, not all of it is fulfilled in t- until this future period of time. And when Paul says, all Israel shall be saved, he's speaking about them corporately. There will be, there's other passages that indicate that there's still unbelievers within the nation, but the official position of the nation will be one of accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Just as in the first century, we could say Israel rejected their Messiah. But not every single Jew rejected Jesus as Messiah, right? Because all of the disciples, the twelve disciples, were all Jewish. And all most of the early church, they were predominantly Jewish. But officially and corporately, the nation of Israel in the first century rejected Jesus as Messiah. So also, during the seven-year period of time, officially, corporately, the nation will in fact receive their Messiah, even though there will be within, corporately, within the nation, individuals that still persist in their rejection. Does that make sense? So all of Israel will be saved in that corporate sense. So there's lots of passages. Now, we need to be aware, let's bring this closer to home, There is a growing anti-Semitism in the world today. In fact, you could even classify this administration as somewhat anti-Semitic. 
Now, they're not so overt because it's still unpopular, even in the United States, but we have an administration that is largely anti-Semitic. And certainly, we see that in all Muslim countries and in other places where even Islam is not prominent. Europe has become largely anti-Semitic. It's Satan's plan to try to thwart what God still has for the nation of Israel. It's always been the case. Since the days of Moses, Israel has always been under attack. In fact, you could trace it even earlier. You could trace it to Genesis chapter 3 and 4. One of the things I wonder about, it, it also seems like in this country, the Jews themselves are anti-Semitic, of course. Some Jews are, yes. Yeah, there's a lot of Jewish people that are atheists. Their justification is, if God were real, then how would he allow a holocaust? And there's other reasons as well. The same ones that all Gentiles fall into as well. They are anti-Israel. Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. So there's a, and, and this is growing. This is growing worldwide. Also, there are several names for a manifestation of the same thing. This anti-Semitic idea, one of the names is called supersessionism. It's a theological position. It also goes by the name of fulfillment theology. And there's a third name. Any of you aware of the third name? This is probably the more uh, well-known amongst church people. This is within the church. Kingdom now. No, that's dominion theology. But some of dominion theology is also what is called what do we, what do we call it? Replacement. Replacement theology. Replacement theology. Now, as the name indicates, replacement theology teaches what? The church has replaced Israel. So all of these prophetic passages pertain, they would say, pertain to the church. Because the church has replaced Israel. And they would take it the next step. As a result of the church replacing Israel, then God has set them aside. And a lot of movements within the church, in fact, some dating way back, even into the Reformation, there has been this idea of replacement theology where people have taken it the next step and have become anti-Semitic. And a lot of persecution from church people upon Jewish people comes out of uh, this theological position. This is extremely, well, I shouldn't say extremely, but this is becoming more popular within church circles today. There are some leading church theologians that hold to what's called replacement theology. Beware of some of that. Well, they get it primarily from the idea that Israel is responsible for crucifying the Messiah. But they forget the Gentiles are also responsible for crucifying the Messiah. They haven't read Romans. That's right. Well, they haven't read the Bible. <laughs> So is replacement theology and fulfillment theology two names for the same thing? Same thing. Three names. names. Supersession, fulfillment theology, replacement theology. Three names for essentially the same thing. These are theological positions of church people. So beware of all of those elements. And the anti-Semitism runs through all of them, but the anti-Semitism is 
prominent in the unbelieving world and the political world and that sort of thing. It is interesting to me that when the leaders say uh, it's going to be on our heads that we did it, that God has said, as you said, so shall it be. That's right. Because that was how the leaders defined God at that point. He said, yeah, yep. so be it. And so be it. they had no clue what they were what they were unleashing. Right. David? Isn't this one of the fallacies of this theology? Uh, it's probably, yeah, probably some elements of it, yeah, yeah. Okay, we didn't get to this little phrase last time because we ended with the testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come in verse 14. Now, he's not talking about the end of the world. Now, people speak of the end of the world. Well, there's still a thousand years of world history after the second coming. So when the Lord returns, that's not the end of the world. The end of a particular era or a particular age, and in this context, then the end of that seven-year period will come. And what Matthew, or what Jesus and Matthew and Luke and Mark are saying is then the end will come, and then what happens at the end is the second coming, which we'll look at when we get to verse 29 in Matthew's account. So this will take place during that seven year, and once everyone that has heard the gospel, and they're called the elect in uh, Matthew's account, and also the book of Revelation, then they, the last one to believe, then that'll be the end of that seven-year period of time. So, another thing that happens, another thing that's accomplished, is because the gospel has been pre- presented, and everyone has heard, everyone has op- had opportunity, it will be the basis for judgment of those people during that period of time. And when Jesus returns, he will bring judgment, and we're going to see pictures of that in Matthew chapter 25. Okay? Makes sense? All right. Turn to Luke's Gospel, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to look at passages that sound some familiar. There's a familiarity here and somewhat of a parallel aspect of it, but I think Luke is focusing on something different than what Matthew and Mark are addressing. Luke, just to give you an overview of the Olivet Discourse in Luke's account, in Luke's account, verses 5 through 7 of chapter 21, is the setting. Parallels Matthew's setting. I think he is also dealing with the period that's called tribulation. And he does that in chapter 21, 8 through 19. That parallels very closely the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's account, as does Mark. But, I think he's specific in verses 20 through 24, to describe the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now, there's kind of a meshing here, and we've talked about it in Matthew's Gospel as well, that the disciples that heard the Olivet Discourse, they would have been able to apply the Olivet Discourse to their time frame. They would have also, if they were aware of the prophetic elements, and I think they would have been, would also think in terms of a period of time after
after their generation. Now, they might have thought that some of it might start within their generation. So Luke is kind of meshing these two ideas, but I think he's specifically dealing with 70 A.D. in this passage. And let me give you some contrasts that uh, might draw this out. First of all, let's read verse 21. But when you... When you see Jerusalem surrounded by, notice Jerusalem, surrounded by armies. Now this will also be the case in the seven year period. But I think he's bringing it home when he uses the word Jerusalem. And he's speaking to the disciples. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Let me make some distinctions here. They're slight, they're subtle, but I think they're evident enough that we can make this distinction. In Matthew 24, Jesus answers primarily their last question, dealing with the signs relating to the second coming, the things that precede the second coming. The, sec- the last question of the disciples, either the last two, or if you put the two together, the last question in Matthew 24.3. Everything we've been looking at in uh, the tribulation period is global. Global. Remember, it talks about nations, not just the Roman Empire. It talks about things that have very far-reaching extent, beyond uh, just uh, the first century time frame. In Matthew 24, the emphasis in terms of God's people is deliverance. In fact, what does the last what verse 13 tell us? Somebody read verse 13 again. Endures the seven-year period of time will be saved. There's deliverance. And the implication is these are believers, so we have spiritual deliverance as well. All right? This is Matthew 24. The gospel of the kingdom, and then, the verse that we just looked at, then the end comes. And then fifthly, the temple is desecrated. We haven't looked at that yet. That's verse 15. We're going to look at that next. Desecration, that's the abomination that makes desolate, in verse 15. These are the emphases of chapter 24, or Matthew's gospel, and they parallel Mark's gospel. You can put Mark up there as well. But Luke particularly verses 20 through 24, deals with the first question. So Jesus answered their question, when will these things take place? And Jesus is answering, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, that's when these temple buildings and stones are going to be overturned. Make sense so far? And he calls attention to Jerusalem itself. Matthew is global. Never mentions Jerusalem. It's global. Luke calls attention to it. Thirdly, notice what it also says in the next verse. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are days of vengeance. In other words, this is the judgment of the first century for rejecting the Messiah. Days of vengeance. Days of judgment. Upon Jerusalem primarily, or at least the focus of the nation of Israel. Instead of deliverance, after the seven years, Luke is focusing on the vengeance aspect. 
Not deliverance, but vengeance or judgment. And he talks about captivity. Let's keep reading. Or skip down to verse 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. Jerusalem again. Notice the tension to Jerusalem again. Will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles. I think he's transitioning now. In other words, Jerusalem is surrounded and it's going to be sieged and in fact destroyed and the area is going to be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are over. When are the times of the Gentiles over? After the church is raptured, even beyond that, at the end of the seven-year period of time. The Gentiles are still trampling Jerusalem during this seven-year period of time. So it's not till the second coming. He's transitioning, and I think in verse 25, he goes back, Luke does, to describe that seven-year period of time. Now, it's a little subtle, and it's not that clear, but I think there's enough distinction here. And instead of the temple being desecrated, what happens to the temple in 70 AD? Destroyed. Destroyed along with the city. Yeah, it's destroyed. See the subtle distinctions there? Okay. So in Luke, we have the siege of Jerusalem. That's verse 20. And then we have the abandonment of Jerusalem. Let me read that again. Then let those who are in Judea, in other words, put yourself into the first century, think in terms of if you were living in that time, you and if you were a Jew, you were living in Judea, flee to the mountains. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city, notice it's local, let them depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city. Now, we're going to see from the rest of the Olivet Discourse the reason for that. Matthew is going to stress a turning point in that seven-year period of time. It appears from the details of Daniel and uh, what uh, Jesus is saying in Matthew's account, it appears that the Jews had access to their temple until the middle. And it seems like that contract with Antichrist was in effect until what Daniel says is broken in the middle. And Jesus describes that breaking of it. And when we look at verse 15, we'll talk about what is involved there. And that's going to be a turning point. It's going to be from that point that the persecution is going to be the most severe. And it's described as great tribulation. And it's going to be poured out not only on the world, but particularly those that believe. So this mass revival, there's going to be mass martyrdom as well. In fact, it's spoken of in this passage in, in, that, in that local sense as well. And then 23 and 24, we have the fall of Jerusalem. Let's see, let me read 22. Because there, these days are, day, are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. He's talking about the fulfillment of the judgment for rejecting Messiah in the first century. And then 23, Woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days. The reason why pregnant women that need attention, that need nurses, that need more care, that need protection, if they have to be out in 
turmoil, it's going to be very difficult for them. Many of them are going to, some of them will probably die just fleeing. Those who have babes in those days, in, in other words, nursing small children, not only do they have to care for themselves, care for children, it's going to be extremely difficult for those people. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. This people, I think, in that local sense. And then verse 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword, there's martyrdom, and will be led captive into all the nations. Captivity. It's another thing. There's not captivity at the end of the seven-year period, but there's salvation awaiting the second coming and deliverance. So there's captivity, and that takes place at 70 A.D., when basically the nation of Israel is is again dispersed throughout the known world. So then while Matthew is uh, describing a global situation, and predominantly future, global and predominantly future, to a local and first century situation. Now, it has somewhat of a double application. In other words, what he's talking about here is also going to be applicable in that seven-year period of time. Jim? Both. Yeah, I would see it as a double fulfillment, which sometimes you have in Scripture, where it applies immediately and almost as a prototype, if you will, or as a preview of the ultimate in the future. That makes sense. At least from the perspective that I see it, and a few other theologians, not too many would hold to this viewpoint. So it's minority, but usually when it's minority, it's right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, no, that that was the case in the first century. In fact, in the first century, the Jewish people fled to a city named Pella, and Josephus writes about it, and there's some historical record, and a lot of women were very vulnerable. In fact, things were so bad, uh, Josephus describes that some people ate their children, because other than that, they were would starve to death. Uh, Josephus speaks of that. If that will be what it will be like, in the future as well. Okay? So we have the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, we had the siege, verse 23. I read that and then the description of it. Did we finish it? Let's see. Captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So that's verse 24. So, but the, the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled the end of the tribulation. Yes. Jesus will end that. And then we will have a millennial kingdom with Israel prominent again. Jim. You said minority view. You're talking about minority of dispensationalism? Yes. So what's the majority view? They kind of brush over this whole thing and see the whole thing continuous. As part of tribulation? As part of tribulation. And I would agree with that, but I think there's a little bit more in there. Yeah. Is it, is it, is times, plural times of the Gentiles? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was trying to... Well, from... from times. It's, it's plural. It refers to all of these time frames. It could even include two ages. 
because if it's, I believe that it starts in 586 B.C., which would still be Old Testament era, and then it goes through the entire church age, and then it goes through the entire seven-year period after the church age, so you have three different eras in there. So you have the times of the Gentile, where they've been dominant. Remember when we looked at uh, the book of Daniel, I laid out the times of the Gentiles, starting with the Babylonian Empire. Babylonians were non-Jew. In fact, all of these world empires since 586 have been non-Jewish. Before that, the nation of Israel was the world empire under David and Solomon. Then they degenerated and taken captive by the Syrians and then Babylonians. And then after the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians conquered uh, Babylon. Greece conquered the Medo-Persians. Rome conquered the Greeks. And since then, there's been somewhat of a, I guess, no world power up until recently. And the Bible speaks of a revived Roman Empire that will still be dominant during that seven-year period of time. Dave? Daniel's vision. Daniel's vision. Times of the Gentiles. Now, Jesus is the one in this passage in Luke uh, 21-24 that identifies it. That's where we get the little phrase, the times of the Gentiles. Seasons, times, eras. Bill? There's some that suggest that the that, that was fulfilled in 67. That was the part, part of it. Yeah. What we're talking about in Luke's Gospel would include 70 AD was the destruction. But it led up beginning in uh, about 66 A.D., yes. Yeah, what didn't happen in a day? Uh, we're talking about siege over a long period of time. Just some images here, just to bring it home. This is an artist's conception of the burning of Jerusalem and the destruction. When we go to Israel, we will visit this site... The rubble there are remains from 70 A.D., at least archaeologists think so. And if you notice the stones on the street there, they date that to first century, and they believe the breaking of the stones is as a result of stones being overturned and dropped on that walkway. And there's a little monument there that kind of describes some of that detail. I think the emperor didn't want to destroy the temple, but the army saw the value in doing exactly what you've described, uh, dismantling the stones and burning it so that the gold would come out and then they could recover the gold. Even the Roman commander said, don't destroy the temple. That the Jews were fighting so hard and so fiercely that the soldier ended up throwing a torch into the temple and burned it. It wasn't part of the the, the initial initial objective or strategy. It was almost an accident. Yeah, I, I don't know all of the details, but we do have some record historical record. But you can view remnants of 70 A.D. today in the city of Jerusalem. This is obviously one of the walls of the uh, foundation, but the uh, retaining wall that on top is where Temple Mount would have been in the first century. So 70 AD, a million Jews were killed. This is according to Josephus, over a million Jews. A holocaust, basically. 
And some died through famine, and I mentioned, Josephus mentioned, some of them ate even their children. There was disease, obviously, whenever there's war and death. Uh, there's always pestilence. Some killed one another. And certainly the Roman Empire killed many others as well. I think this comes from Josephus. 97,000 Jews were taken prisoners in 70 A.D. Today, you can also, if you go to Rome, you can visit another somewhat of a memorialized structure, the Arch of Titus. In the background there is the Colosseum, so this is certainly in Rome. And if you visit it, one of the reliefs on the side there, in fact, right there, I'm going to blow that up, well, more than a menorah, but this memorializes 70 A.D. by the Romans destroying the city and taking out of the temple the treasures of the temple, bringing them back to Rome. That's what this whole scene depicts. And there's a picture of it with a menorah. And the captives are in the front there, and they're bringing the treasures back to Rome. So that memorializes the 70 A.D destruction. So you can see that in Rome today. And there's a close-up of the menorah. Then in Luke's Gospel, 25-28, goes to the second coming. Closing thought, God is not finished with Israel. Don't believe in replacement theology. Support Israel in prayer and otherwise. And by the way, a trip to Israel supports Israel because that's part of their, their finance. Who wants to close for us? Jim? Hi, Father. Would you thank you for this nation to help understand the true history of Israel and the world and the second coming of Jesus Christ? We pray, Father, that consider what we've heard that we attribute our faith in such a way that we draw in our manifest of Jesus Christ and the Amen.